Hi listeners, and welcome to the True Crime Weekly Podcast, a podcast that is based in San Diego and hosted by me, Alina Trujillo, and my producer, Jose Fernandez. This is a podcast where I will be bringing you stories of murder, infamous cases, and unsolved mysteries. In the evening of August 20th, 1989, Jose and Kitty were watching TV in the living room of their beautiful Beverly Hills house. When their two sons, 21-year-old Lyle and 18-year-old Eric Menendez, would burst into the home and shoot them both to death in an act that shocked neighbors in this ritzy Beverly Hills neighborhood. This is the story of the Menendez brothers. Jose Menendez was a self-made millionaire who immigrated from Cuba to the U.S. when he was 16 years old. Jose was born to a prosperous family in Havana, Cuba. His father was a well-known soccer player who owned his own accounting firm. His mother was a swimmer who had been elected to be in Cuba's Sports Hall of Fame. But in 1959, his life was uprooted due to Fidel Castro overthrowing the ruling government and seized the property of the wealthy and upper middle class. At the age of 16, Jose left the country to live in the United States. While attending Southern Illinois University, Jose met his wife, Mary Louise, nicknamed Kitty. Kitty's upbringing was much more different than Jose's. Kitty's home life was very unhappy. She had a cruel, abusive father and a despondent, battered mother. Her father would later move in with his mistress, turning his back on his family. And due to her father's abandonment, Kitty became a depressed child that had very little friends. And eventually she would cut off all contact with her father, whom she came to despise. And Kitty would graduate high school and attend Southern Illinois University and later move on to become an elementary school teacher. In 1964, Jose and Kitty get married and by 1968, Kitty gave birth to their first son, Joseph Lyle Menendez. And then in 1970, she would give birth to her second child, Eric Galen Menendez, leaving her teaching career behind and becoming a full-time homemaker. And Jose was known to be a intelligent guy and a very hard worker. He had worked his way up from a dishwasher to an executive vice president of a independent film company. And even though Jose was a highly intelligent and diligent man, he was also disliked because of his arrogance. Jose and Kitty's life looked idyllic on the surface, even though Jose was seen as this intelligent, attractive, and charming guy, and Kitty had the appearance of the perfect wife and mother, that was far from the truth. The truth was that Jose was an unfaithful husband with a lot of mistresses. Kitty was described as a woman who had great difficulty coping with stress and her husband's repeated extramarital affairs, which drove her to despair. Kitty dealt with her problems by abusing alcohol and prescription pills. Things got so bad between Kitty and Jose that in 1987, she attempted suicide by taking a bottle of sleeping pills. And even though Kitty would survive the incident, Jose and Kitty would continue to have marital problems 
as well as having a strained relationship with her two sons. And just how Jose was not liked by his co-workers and subordinates, because he was rude and arrogant, his two sons also viewed him as stern and demanding, and his relationship with them was deteriorating. It's been reported that allegedly both of the brothers had been mentally and sexually abused by both of their parents for years. And... Wait, by both of the parents? Yes. And it was both of the boys' dream to go away to college just so that they can get away from their father. And even though this dream would come true for Lyle when he got accepted into Princeton... Eric would not be as lucky. Unlike Lyle, Eric was not allowed to to attend a out-of-state college. Instead, Eric would attend UCLA. And at first, I read in an article that supposedly Eric was not allowed to stay at the dorms. And then eventually, I think that somehow Eric would convince his father to allow him to stay at the dorms. Under the condition that he would still spend several nights a week at home. And I can only imagine that this was devastating to Eric. And I'm sure that he must have felt trapped. And like, he might never get away from the abuse. And the abuse was still happening at that age? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Now, let me make it clear. Like, in no way am I justifying what the brothers did. I'm just simply stating that no one really knows what goes on behind doors. And if the brothers did suffer from years of sexual abuse, I can imagine how he must have felt when he wasn't allowed to attend a out-of-state college or even be able to stay at the dorms, for that matter. You know, just simply because both of the brothers viewed that as an out. Right, they probably looked for it as that's that's my opportunity to get out of here. Right, to probably get away. for a long time. Mm-hmm. Right. So it would be shortly after this that Lyle would return back home for the summer. And that's when Eric would confess to Lyle about the abuse that he had been enduring at the hands of their father. Wait, so did Lyle not know about the sexual abuse? And so was Eric the only brother that was sexually abused? No, so Lyle didn't know about the sexual abuse until his brother let him know about it. But they were both um, sexually abused by the father. They just didn't know about it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. <laughs> yeah, so... It's just a secret between both of them, I'm sure. Right. It's not something you'd really want to talk about mm-hmm. or be afraid of talking about or maybe even be ashamed. Right. On August 15, 1989, Lyle allegedly confronted Jose about the abuse. And as you can imagine, Jose did not appreciate the conversation. This confrontation would be what would set the brothers' plans of murder into motion. By this time, the brothers felt that their life was in danger and it was going to come down to either their father killing them or them killing him first. And they thought they would save their mother from having to live without her husband by killing her too. So on August... Where did that logic come from? (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, I guess they saw it as, you know, we're going to 
spare her. <laughs> and spare the woman that also allegedly had sexual abuse, too? I mean, that's... It was mental abuse that she was conducting on them. I don't know that there was any sexual abuse um, that she was actually doing. Because I think it was reported that supposedly she knew that the father was sexually abusing them. But she just didn't do anything about it. I don't know that she actually was the one. Oh, I see. Yeah. So on August 18, 1989, Eric and Lyle would drive over 100 miles away from their home to a big five store in San Diego to purchase shotguns. And on August 20th, 1989, they would burst into the living room, shotguns in hand, ready to carry out their plan. Jose and Kitty were sitting on the couch watching TV when Lau and Eric enter the room and start shooting. I read that Jose was shot in the back of the head, which then caused Kitty to get up from the couch and try to make a run for it when she got shot in the leg, which then caused her to slip in a pool of her own blood and fall down to the floor. Wow, there was that much blood? Mm-hmm. She was then shot several times in the arm, chest, and face, leaving her unrecognizable. Both parents were shot in the kneecaps in order to make it seem like the crime was committed by the mom. That's unbelievable. Yeah, it, I mean, it's horrifying. And Eric and Lyle shot a total of 15 rounds into their parents that day. After the murders, Lau and Eric drove up to Mulholland Drive to dump their shotguns and get rid of the bloody clothes. After they dumped the guns and changed into clean clothes, they drove to a local movie theater to buy movie tickets for Batman. For Batman? Yeah. So I read during my research that the movie was set to end between 9 and 9.30 at night then the brothers were supposed to meet up with a friend at a food festival in LA so the brothers never really did go watch the movie they never showed up to the food festival either but instead that's what they had planned to build as an alibi oh okay that makes more sense I thought they were over here just casually going to watch a movie no they were just trying to get an alibi together mm-hmm during my research, I read that Eric testified during court that Lyle had gotten into an argument with Jose and Kitty about going out that same evening, which led Eric to be sent to his room by his father. And allegedly, Eric feared that his father would follow him up to his room to have sex with him. But nevertheless, Eric complied with his father's demands and went upstairs to his room. While he was in his room, he would hear Lau yelling at Jose, telling him that he was not going to touch Eric and that he would never touch his little brother again. And according to Eric, this is when Jose and Kitty would retrieve to the living room, closing the doors. And it's at this point that Eric testified that Lau would go upstairs and tell Eric, it's happening now. They were waiting for me to get home from school and it's gonna happen now like it's gonna go down he was thinking this is when our father 
you know, it's going to kill us. So did they think that it was going to be not only the father, but also that their mother was going to be involved with this? I mean, I guess in some way, I think they just, they mostly fear the father. I think that they knew, you know, mom wasn't going to stop him or interfere in any way. You know, our mom knows that our father is sexually abusing us and she's doing nothing about it. So if he wanted to kill us, she's not going to stop him. Yeah. It just seems like a, a crazy jump from the thought of, oh, our father's going to kill us. That's mm-hmm. the plan now because we're defying him. It just doesn't, I don't know where you jump to make that conclusion that that's right. what's going to happen next. Yeah. And that's why they thought it was coming down to either they kill them or they wait to get killed by Jose. And this is where it's unclear how much time had lapsed between the confrontation and the murders. But it's said that it was enough time for the brothers to separate and retrieve their shotguns from where they had hit them. And around... 10 o'clock p.m., the brothers would burst into the living room, unloading a total of 13 to 15 shots. And I believe I read that Jose was shot four times and Kitty was shot a total of nine times. And after this, it's where it said that the brothers went into, you know, that cover-up mode. And that's why they... They had to get rid of the shotguns and drive to the movie theater to try and get the movie tickets. And eventually they would disregard the movie tickets after the brothers noticed that the tickets were timestamped and they wouldn't provide the adequate alibi for them. And at around 11 p.m., Lyle called the friend that they were supposed to meet up with at that um, food festival and told him that they had gotten lost on the way to the festival and that by the time they would arrive that the festival would have ended already so instead they made plans to meet up with a friend at a restaurant but they told him that first they needed to go home to get eric's fake id so the friend would agree to wait for the brothers to drive home and get the fake id for eric and it's at this time that the brothers returned back home to make the discovery, quote unquote, of their parents' bodies. So the brothers returned back home, and this is where Lao will make the 911 call, the infamous 911 call, stating, Somebody killed my parents. Yes. Uh-huh. 
Investigators arrive at the home, they determine that there was no forced entry and that it didn't appear to be a robbery since nothing was taken. But they didn't know who might have done such thing. So investigators would question Lyle and Eric on their whereabouts on that night. And the boys told investigators how they had gone to see the new Batman movie. And during questioning, Eric was very upset. He was crying over the grief of the loss of their parents while Lyle was calm and collected. And when asked if they knew who wanted to hurt their parents, that's when Lyle would respond back by saying that maybe the mob could have done it. Try to imply that, you know, possibly his dad might have been involved with the mob or, you know, done some shady stuff. Um, so police looked into the mob lead, but nothing came back from those leads. And eventually the police determined that both brothers were involved in the murders because they had, they had obvious financial motives. So weeks leading up to the funeral of Jose and Kitty Menendez, the brothers had been seen buying luxury cars, watches, and they were allegedly throwing parties i mean was that out of the ordinary behavior for them i mean i know they, they were probably wealthy so was this right but i mean your both your parents just died so yeah of course it's out of the ordinary you're not going to go out and buy all these luxury cars watches and on top of it throw all these parties i mean you should be grieving over the loss of your parents so it would take police six months to arrest the brothers for the murders. So remember, even though police thought that the brothers had something to do with it because of these weird incidents of them being seen making all these large amount of purchases and throwing parties, they knew that Lyle and Eric had something to do with it. They just couldn't quite pinpoint it. So it wouldn't be until six months later that they would get arrested. And Eric being the most vulnerable out of the two brothers, he started to feel guilt over the murders. So Eric would later confess to the murders to his psychiatrist, Dr. Jerome Ozeal. And that's eventually how the brothers would get caught. Wait, but who's Dr. Ozeal? Was is he like the therapist that was treating him before all this? Or was that yeah. somebody they met after? No, no, no. So in 1988, prior to the murders, Eric had been charged with two residential burglaries in Calabasas of the Los Angeles County area. And 
In connection with these charges, both brothers acquire the services of an attorney. So the attorney would suggest to the court that Eric and Lyle just needed to seek help as to why they would commit, like, they, they needed to work through whatever led them to commit this burglaries. So eventually, Dr. Steele would present the outcome of these therapy sessions in court, and due to his statement, eventually both the brothers would just pretty much receive a slap to the hand and, you know, they got away with it. But that's how they ended up meeting Dr. Ozeal. So Eric called out and told him about how he had confessed to Dr. Ozeal. And Lau would fly back from Princeton to attempt and fix the damage that his brother Eric had done by showing up to Dr. Ozeal's office and threatening his life. And Dr. Steele would call the boys back into his office several times. And during these sessions, Dr. Steele would be recording the boys' confessions. And the boys had no idea that Dr. Steele was recording them. But he was doing all this, I guess, to impress his mistress. Oh. Yeah. So wasn't so, he meant to try to, like, find justice? Which I don't, I don't even know how that works. Is that even legal? For him to record that stuff? Right. I don't know. You would have to think, you know, there's that patient... Oh, doctor-patient confidentiality. However, in March of 1990, Dr. Ozeal's mistress was enraged because she had just been dumped by Dr. Ozeal. And she decided to go to police and let them know that Eric and Lyle Menendez had confessed to Dr. Ozeal of the murders of their parents. She let them know how Dr. Osteo had recorded the confessions. And the recorded confessions was the leading reason for the arrest of Eric and Lyle Menendez. And this is where it's literally six months later? Mm-hmm. Wow. On March 8th, 1990, Lyle was arrested for the murders of Jose and Kitty Menendez. And Eric had been in Israel for a tennis tournament when he learned about Lau's arrest. And then on March 11th, 1990, Eric would turn himself into police custody for the murders of his parents as well. Oh, which, by the way, Jose, want to know a fun fact? Yeah, what's a fun fact? Here we go. March 11th is my birthday. Fun <laughs> fact. Okay, so... <laughs> um, in 1993, the brothers were tried with separate juries designed for each of them so both claiming self-defense due to years of abuse by both of their parents in 1994 both juries announced that they were deadlocked and could not reach a decision and both cases were declared a mistrial and in 1995 the brothers were tried again but this time by one jury and the case was much less publicized. And in 1996, the brothers were found guilty of first degree murder and were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And as of today, 2020, the brothers are both serving their life sentences at Donovan's Correctional Facility in San Diego, California. And as mentioned before, every week we bring you an open case from our local San Diego Crime Stoppers. 
San Diego County Crime Stoppers and investigators from the San Diego Police Department Homicide Unit continue to ask for the public's help in identifying and locating the suspect or suspects responsible for the murder of 22-year-old Gregory Ruffin Jr. On February 24, 2019, at approximately 11.11 p.m., San Diego police officers, along with San Diego fire rescue personnel, responded to a report of a person down in the 300 block of 47th Street in San Diego. Officers found 22-year-old Gregory Ruffin Jr. lying on the sidewalk and was suffering from apparent trauma to his upper body. Life-saving measures were attempted, but were not successful. Ruffin Jr. was pronounced deceased at the scene. San Diego Police homicide detectives were called to the scene and began investigating the incident. Detectives are trying to determine the circumstance in which led to the victim's death. The victim's family is offering a $9,000 reward in addition to Crime Stoppers $1,000 reward to anyone with information that leads to an arrest in this case. Anyone with information on this murder is asked to call the San Diego Police Department Homicide Unit at 619-531-2293 or contact Crime Stoppers Anonymous tip line. And just remember that every tip is anonymous with Crime Stoppers and only you can make a difference. If you want to look at pictures and want more information on the cases we cover, you can head over to truecrimeweeklypodcast.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at podcast true crime weekly. And I would truly love it and appreciate it if you would leave a five-star review and subscribe onto Apple Podcast. The only way that people find out about us is through subscribers and reviews. Thanks for listening.